0: You're on educateforlife.com radio with Kevin Carnivore. And if you listen long enough, your faith will become
1: Unshot. I'm tired of being conned. Don't worry, the con is over. She.
2: We're now at DEFCON 1.
0: Did you say Carnivore or Carnivore?
1: you like to have a conversation with kevin then call 800-243-9719 and now here's your host kevin conover
0: bring your time and bring your shame
3: welcome to educate for life i'm your host kevin conover my website is join.educateforlife.org it's 40 online classes defending the truth of the bible and uh, i have a special guest in the studio today if you didn't know this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, of Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, and uh, really the the Protestant Reformation, right, where the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church uh, ended up splitting. Uh, So my guest today is from Southern California Seminary, is Corey Marsh. He's a graduate of Southern California Seminary. He earned a BA in Biblical Studies, uh, Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, and a Master of Divinity. He is finishing uh, his Master of Theology degree at SCS. SCS, and will begin a PhD in biblical theology at Midwestern Baptist, Baptist uh, Seminary. He he is also a professor there at the seminary, and uh, he w- served as an uh, editor of a new book that just came out, Forged from Reformation. It's actually—it's uh, official uh, date— is October 31st, which if you you know you're thinking, hey, that's Halloween, but that's also the Reformation Day, what we would right. call Reformation
2: Day. And so, uh, Corey, thanks for being on the air today. Kevin, I am so happy to be here. For one, it's nice and cool in yeah. the studio. <laughs> it's 105 degrees outside in October. Can you believe that? Yeah, and, yeah, and East County is even hotter. too. <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's where crazy. the seminary is. So yeah, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm more than
3: thrilled to be in the air conditioning right now. Yeah, and the cool thing about having Corey on the show here today is um, I teach at the high school there, associated that's with right. Shadow. Mountain, and you're right across the street at the seminary. That's right.
2: So we have a very good relationship. That's
3: right. (laughs) Even though this is the first time we've met each other. But uh, we're we're getting along great here. So... You know, the book here, it's interesting, Forged from Reformation, probably what comes to most people's minds immediately is the distinctions between Protestant Christianity and Catholicism, but that's not really what the book is about. Right, Uh,
2: Corey, can you tell us what the book is about? Sure. This is a very unique book, Kevin. This is something that really doesn't exist on the market right now. Uh, It's about 15 different scholars got together uh, and decided to write something that shows That dispensational theology is the truest, most consistent error of the Reformation. So instead of an attack or an extreme uh, critique of the Roman Catholic Church, the book's uh, premise is to show that dispensational theology is advanced, or excuse me, dispensationalism advances the Reformation principles most consistently uh, than any other theological system.
3: Okay, so what's important here, for those of you listening, don't be uh, discouraged here. You're, you're hearing dispensationalism, you're you're hearing uh, Reformation herma- hermeneutic, and right. uh, you're thinking, wait a second, this is way above my head, but um, our job here today is to break this down uh, for the average person to be able to understand, because they're significant issues. They're important issues. So why don't we start, Corey, with um, talking about what exactly is dispensationalism? I know a lot of people out there, the average Christian, uh, doesn't really uh, come across this word in sermons frequently.
2: Mm -hmm. So can you explain what is dispensationalism? Sure. I appreciate the question, Kevin, because it is important to talk about. How this? Before I talk about what it is, let's talk about what it's not. Okay. Because it gets mischaracterized a lot. Sure. Uh, Dispensationalism is not a denomination. Okay, so it's not like, say, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. Sure. It actually transcends denominations. We have disp- dispensationalists are found in each one of those denominations. Um, it is not a hermeneutic, and that's another big word you brought up. Hermeneutic, of course, is just the art and science of interpreting any book. For yeah. us, it's the scriptures. Yeah. Dispensationalism is not a hermeneutic. Uh, it is not an interpretation. What dispensationalism is, is a system of theology that results from reading the Bible consistently literal or in other words in other words a consistently literal hermeneutic will result in dispensational theology.
3: Okay, so let's break that down just a little bit further what you just said there. A lot of people, when they hear the word literal, they're yeah. thinking to themselves, okay, you're some sort of fundamentalist person who uh, doesn't ever look at the Bible and see poetry sure. or see uh, alliteration or anything like this. So can you expe- explain what a literal interpretation of the Scriptures actually is? What does Absolutely. That mean? Yeah.
2: There's a difference between a literal interpretation and what's often called a wooden literal interpretation. Mm. We believe in literal interpretation, which, mis- which just means that we take the normal rules of grammar— and the facts of history when we are interpreting scripture. So whatever verse says, we apply it uh, by the words, the, the clause that it is, what the words mean, and the historical context that it's in. So, for instance, if we're reading Genesis, it is historical narrative. It is not poetry. We don't believe it's poetry. It's, re- it's written like narrative, like history. So we interpret it as literal history. When you get to the Psalms, it is poetry. Uh, there's a lot of figures of speech throughout the whole Bible, but specifically in poetic literature like the Psalms, and we understand it as poetry because, again, the normal rules of grammar and the facts of history would show, okay, this is poetic. So there's going to be lots of metaphors, lots of figures of speech. Uh, when you're reading Paul's epistles. We understand this is doctrine, this is epistolary literature, uh, which is just literature that's a, it's a letter that's being written, and we understand when he's writing doctrine that this is literal. We understand when he uses metaphors that it's metaphor. Yeah, um, A literal interpretation is not like this backwoods fundamentalist type mischaracterization where we think that God has wings because the Psalms describe God as, as shadowing people within his wings. No, yeah. we understand that as a poetic expression. and In fact, it's very interesting that the guy, the scholar that wrote the most on figures of speech, believe it or not, was a dispensationalist. E.W. Bollinger wrote figures of speech used in the Bible, and it's still the standard definitive work on figures of speech, and he was a literal dispensationalist. Wow, that's very interesting. Now,
3: what is the what is the mirror um, or the counterpoint to a literal interpretation of Scripture? So if, if you're saying, hey, this is how we interpret it, we interpret it literally as the genre or as the Type of scripture sure. Uh, so what would be the other side of that? Where where you're saying this is what I'm not right?
2: Yeah, uh, it's called a lo- Well, there's different words for different types of interpretations allegorical is one an allegory just simply means of looking for a hidden meaning, mm. something deeper that's beneath the surface. Um, and that's where things like in the book addresses this, where you would apply things that say are, are meant for national Israel and apply it to, say, the church because you take that literal meaning out. Uh, so allegory, allegory would be a different type of interpretation. Um, another one would say mystical interpretation um, uh, historical theology sometimes gets used as an interpretation. What did John calvin say about this therefore i 'm going to say the same thing, mm. uh, whether he was right or wrong doesn 't matter. These are all different types of interpretive systems it 's best to stick with the consistent literal interpretation because the Bible itself is written in a way and it promotes a literal understanding of its of its pages
3: okay so so essentially what you 're saying is we look at what the author is saying and we ask what did he mean by this Absolutely. we're not looking for a secret meaning right. that god under you know put under what the what the author said we're we're taking it that god
2: Absolutely, yeah. Kevin. You nailed it. That okay. is it. It is. We want to get to the author's intention. Okay. What did the author intend when he said, "Say this metaphor"? What yeah. did he intend when he said, when he's reporting on history? Uh, what is the point of the author's intention? That is exactly what we want to uncover, and that's what the best hermeneutic that does that, or the best interpretation that does that, is a literal interpretation. We understand. Say it, it, it's a. It's not the best way to put it, but say poetry. We would understand literally as poetry. Yeah, you know, if it's prophecy, we understand it literally as prophecy. If it's under, if it's historical narrative, like I mentioned earlier, we understand it literally as that genre. Okay. But as you said, that that hits the nail on the head. We want to get to the author's intention. Okay.
3: Rather than rather than going, okay, what am I going to get out of this? In the sense that, um, you know, I think even when I was younger, uh, we would look, read the Bible, and I'd, I'd hear people say. Now, what does this mean to me that's right. as if it was a private thing, as if it was? So would you say that that's not the right approach? What does it mean to me versus
2: what is the author trying to say? Absolutely yeah. correct. In fact, that's something that is a problem, say, with a lot of uh, small group Bible studies. It's called sort of a round robin a reader mm-hmm. response and exactly how you described it. We all sort of take a turn reading a scripture and then go to each person. What did that mean to you? Now, what did that mean to you? And as you just mentioned, that does, that's not the point. The point is, what did it mean to the author who wrote it? What did it mean to, to Moses when he wrote that? What did it mean to the Apostle John when he wrote it? And ultimately, what does it mean from God? It's his word. So our, what does it mean to us in particular really doesn't matter. What does matter is what did the author mean when he wrote it?
3: Now, what do you say to the person that says, well, that takes away the personal relationship with God because it, God is a God who we have a personal relationship with, and somebody says, well, you're, you're, you're depersonalizing it by saying that it doesn't matter what it means to me.
2: What would you say to somebody? Oh, I would say that's, I don't think anybody actually lives that way. Yeah. You know, as a husband, I'm married, and if I write something to my wife or my wife writes a card to me, what matters is what she meant by it, and what matters to her is what I meant by it. That's how our relationship is strengthened, by our communication. Yeah. We have to know what each other meant. When I say I love you to my wife, Uh, that's what I mean by it. You know how she might interpret it. If it's anything other than how, what I'm trying to mean by it, I better make sure that I'm communicating very well that no, honey, I love you. And that's what I mean by it. So when it comes to the Bible, uh, when God tells us something, say in Genesis, the very beginning of language, we're coming up on a break here. So I want, I want to pick up on this story here when we come back,
3: uh, what you're talking about. And I also, we're, we're also going to explain dispensationalism and, um, I think this is really important, and so stay with us. We're going to be right back. We're we're talking about the Reformation. We're on the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, so a very interesting conversation. We're going to be right back.
1: When you need tires or service, count on Conover Tires, Wheels, and Service in Oceanside for a full range of affordable options in all the brands you trust. See their great customer reviews and special offers online. Hours Tuesday through Friday, 730 to 530, and Saturdays, 730 to 5. Call Dan and his team at 760-439-1631. Conover Tires, Wheels, and Service, 2405 Oceanside Boulevard in Oceanside, 760-439-1631. I will cast my cares on you.
3: Thanks for listening today. This is Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website is join.educateforlife.org. You can listen to a recording of this show, and you can pick up previous shows. Have all kinds of amazing uh, radio programs up on my website, also on YouTube. If you're uh, watching on YouTube, uh, you can see us here in the studio, our smiling faces. Uh, Corey waved to the camera there.
2: Oh, there's the camera. Hey everybody, how I'm you doing? At the wrong yeah, well, yeah. yeah. oh, there's or two cameras. Oh, there is two, okay, yeah, so you can, you can
3: wave <laughs> to either one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, how about both uh, at the same time? There you go. <laughs> that takes a lot of skill. <laughs> right. uh, so, my guest today is Corey Marsh. He has just gotten finished editing or helping edit along with uh, a lot of other people involved in a huge project, a book called Forged from Reformation, put out by Southern California Seminary. If you're interested in the book, you can check it out on the website, forgedfromreformation.com. And if you're interested in the seminary, you can check them out at socalsem.edu. That's S-O-C-A-L-S-E-M.edu. And uh, Corey, when we left off uh, from the last segment, you were talking about how impor- How it's important to know what the person writing actually intended in the message. Can you pick up right. where you left off there? Yes,
2: sure. And, and I appreciate you talking about the seminary because at Southern California seminary, it's something that we are very adamant about, hermeneutics everything gets boiled down to an interpretation. How all our our, our theology, all of our doctrinal beliefs at its core comes from an interpretation. Mm. Uh, We believe, and we believe the correct method of interpreting the scriptures is consistently literal. That's the buzzword, the key word is consistent literal. And when we left off, I was talking about the purpose of language and if you just look at genesis 1 and you you would ask about you know does that take away from the person the personhood of, of or the personality if you will the in, the intimate relationship yes. trying to get at the author's intent yeah if you just look at genesis 1 and how god spoke to adam now it's obvious that he meant for adam to not eat of the fr- the, the 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 fruit of the knowledge of good and evil for in that day you will surely die it was a literal command and he Understood it literally, and he disobeyed it literally, and now we are in this thing called the fall ever since. So everything comes down to an interpretation of God's word, and the literal interpretation since the very beginning in Genesis is the correct one.
3: I, I just want to touch on this. I know this really wasn't the topic of our uh, of our show today, but our program today. But I, I just want to emphasize this one more time. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It's a very very popular mm-hmm. verse. For I know the plans I have you plans. Uh, to give you a hope in a future, right. and a lot of people they read that and they take great um, encouragement from that they they go, Hey, look at God is looking out for me, God cares about me, and so you know you'll you 'll put that on a plaque or mm-hmm. something, and yet that message was uh, specifically to israel um so how would you respond to somebody who says hey isn 't that meant for me?' Uh, And when you say it's literal, are you saying that that's only for Israel, that's not for
2: me? How would you respond to somebody who said something like that? Great question. In fact, that is a verse that gets taken out of context so much. It is the favorite uh, devotional verse. It's a a plaque. Like you said, I have family that actually have that on their wall. Uh, What is most important is, as you pointed out, that primary audience is the most important thing. When you read a passage, who is this addressing? There was no church in Jeremiah's day. It was clearly God speaking to Israel, his chosen people, Mm. his people. Now, does that apply to me? Of course. As we read in the New Testament, we are now sons of Abraham through faith. So the primary audience was national Israel. We can never discard that. And I can apply this to me knowing because God has plans for Israel and he does a national corporate plan. Well, he also has a plan for me. You know, this, there's a, there's an inference we can take from that, but we must be very clear of okay. The primary audience the primary application is for national Israel in that particular verse, and I can infer from that a personal application for me, but never discard that primary audience. Okay, that's fantastic.
3: So let's get into dispensationalism now. So um, this is the big part of the book: is uh, how does reform, how does the Reformation and Martin, the the five uh, solas uh, that Martin Luther describes. Um, how does that apply to dispensational theology? Can you explain what is dispensationalism?
2: Well, dispensationalism, as I brought up, it's a, it's a system of theology. Some would call it a pattern of of, of beliefs, of doctrines. It results from a consistent literal interpretation. Um, uh, Charles Ryrie, a a famous dispensational theologian who we just lost a few years ago, he really did the church a service by breaking it down to three major points, what he called the sine qua non. First was a distinction between church and Israel. Now, that was a strategic point for him to put, because if you want to know if someone's a dispensationalist, and just ask him, do you believe that God has a plan for national Israel and that he still loves them and he still has a plan for them? If your answer is yes, well, congratulations, you're a dispensationalist and you didn't know it. Interesting. Right. Uh, but... now, now, are there people that actually believe that there is no plan for Israel? There is. There okay. is. It would be the opposite of what dispensationalism is and what's called covenant theology. Mm. And what they would believe is that the church is now the new Israel. Mm. The church has replaced Israel— the church has superseded Israel. Uh, the blessings that were given to Israel in the Old Testament are now applied to the church. So Israel just happens to be there, and there just happens to be this Jewish people. But they're in no more. They're in no. Uh, there's no covenant with them anymore. They're not favored in any sense. Um, it is now the church. So what dispensationalism is? It's the. Uh, it would be the opposite of that theological system called covenant theology. Okay. And, and uh, so that, that's the first uh,
3: point you said right. that, that Riri gave us. A distinction between church and Israel, right. Okay, and what was the next two? Well,
2: the next 2 It actually, he, he said that point first, although—and he did that for strategic reasons, being that if you want to know if someone's a dispensationalist, ask them if they still believe in a plan for Israel. Mm-hmm. But that distinction comes out of, the most important point, a consistent literal interpretation. When you read—you uh, brought up Jeremiah 29— When you read the Old Testament, you see prophecies given to Israel, specifically, say, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34 is the new covenant, is given to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Mm. Clearly not the church. Uh, From Abraham in Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, these were given the father of the Jews. These were given the Mosaic covenant, say, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. These were given to Israel. There is no reason to have to apply them to the church. Israel still has a place in God's eyes. The Old Testament calls Israel the apple of his eye, and he still is. Uh, so that would be the first point that leads to that second point, which, was, which would be the distinction between church and Israel.
3: Okay, now how would a covenant theologian re- respond to you and justify the idea that, hey, the promises that were made to, to Israel in the Old Testament actually apply to the church? What would be the response?
2: Well, the only way they can come to that uh, that interpretation would be by their what I what I described earlier as an allegorical interpretation. Okay. If you bypass the literal meaning of scripture, then you can make it mean whatever you want.
3: Okay. Um, so is that are- completely arbitrary? I mean, where did that come from? I I've heard that the reason covenant theology arose was because the state of Israel was not didn't exist mm-hmm. and it didn't look like it was going to come back into existence and then 1948 right. it, israel became a state again but people right. weren't expecting that to be the case it looked like they were completely gone right. is that true or Abs- you-
2: that that is that is true that is okay. one of the points in fact martin luther and I this in the book um that's something he thought you know that you think israel was no longer a nation actual nation on the on the map if you will by yeah. their time so how could the promises be made to Israel if Israel is not going right. to exist. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that interpretation can be traced back all the way to the second century, unfortunately. Uh, it would probably started with the epistle of Barnabas. Wow. Which oh. wasn't the real Barnabas that we know in the New Testament. Is a pseudo-Barnabas hmm. in the second century, like I mentioned. But there's the first, prob- probably the first hint at a replacement, what we call a replacement theology, which is the church now replaces Israel. It started from then. And it led on through the years, and from that, Kevin, unfortunately, there has been anti-Semitism mm. in the church. This is where it comes from. It comes from a faulty hermeneutic that displaces Israel, applies all the blessings, not their curses, but of course the blessings for Israel, they apply that to the church. And you can kind of see, rationally, it's, it's, not a, it's not a hard step to see how they can start hating Jewish people wow. if they think God is now done with them. Mm. So anti-Semitism, and we address this in the book, really at its core has a hermeneutic involved. And this is why it's so important to, to um,
3: read the Bible appropriately and to actually interpret the Bible appropriately, because if you're off base, you can end up drawing conclusions that really take you— off the heart of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Just
2: like you said, it, it can be arbitrary. Yeah. At that point, is well, whose opinion is correct? Mm. You know, some believe that the church replaced Israel. Some believe that Christ himself is, the, you know, replaced everything that Israel was about. I mean, it can go, it can go on and on. It can now go on to their, all the quasi Christian cults. I yeah. mean, do you remember David Koresh and the, Dan- the Branch yeah. Davidians from Waco, Waco Texas? Waco, That's Texas. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he believed he was the Messiah. He yeah. just went ahead and applied it to him. At what point does it stop? Mm. That's now, it's a, important to realize yeah. that covenant theologians, of course, I mean, these are brilliant Christian scholars for the most part, and they would never go that far, yeah. but their system does allow for that to happen.
3: Yeah, and the line is really arbitrary because, I mean, you can't, I mean, uh, who are you to say where that line Absolutely. stops, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, we're coming up on another break here, and uh, we're making progress here. I still want to ask more about dispensationalism, and, and we're going to cover the the five uh, solas that Martin Luther expounded on and why they're so significant and how they're connected Specifically to dispensationalism, and we'll talk uh, more about what the dispensations are. So stay with us. Uh, This is a great opportunity to get educated on the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. We'll be right back.
0: Before I bring my need, I will
3: bring my heart. Tuning in to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website is join.educateforlife.org, and uh, I'd love for you to check us out on YouTube or Facebook. And uh, there's all kinds of opportunities. I teach apologetics, which is a defense of the truth of God's word. Um, I teach it on a regular basis at a Christian high school. I teach 11th graders. And I also have an online curriculum. It's 40 online classes, all videotaped in high definition. They're each an hour to an hour and a half long on all kinds of subjects, like creation and evolution on uh, world religions. How do we know that Christianity is true and say another religion isn't? Uh, And how do we know the Bible is actually God's word? We deal with all those difficult issues that people have questions about. Great place to really uh, build up your faith and give you confidence in the truth of God's word. My guest today is Corey Marsh. He's with Southern California Seminary. And coming out, uh, the official uh, date here is October 31st, uh, Reformation Day, not Halloween, Reformation Day, excuse me, the 500-year anniversary. And uh, he, uh, involved with 15 other scholars, uh, uh, put together a book called Forged from Reformation, the connection between uh, dispensational thought and uh, the Reformed legacy. So, uh, Corey, I-, I wanted to ask you, uh, picking up where we left off, mm-hmm. I think we covered two of the the points you right. said that Riri had covered. What's the third one Right. Uh, before we get into... Uh, the
2: dispensations. Sure. Ryrie came up with this, his third point of the sine qua non, which is just a Latin phrase meaning the essentials of the system all have to be together or it falls apart. Uh, The first being the distinction between church and Israel. The second, which is actually really the first, which is a consistent literal interpretation, which leads to a distinction between church and Israel. And the third point was the doxological purpose of history. Doxological, big word there, doxology, just the Greek word doxa, meaning glory. That everything God does is for his glory. Uh, in contrast, the covenantalists, covenant theology we brought and we were talking about that, mm-hmm. they would have no problems with, every, you know, with the glory of God being the ultimate purpose of everything. However, they, seem, they tend to limit it to the redemption of the elect. That salvation is how God is glorified. Mm-hmm. Dispensationalists will say, no, well, of course he's glorified that way. Yeah. But that's not the only way. God's glorified by nature. God is glorified. Even his justice is glorified by those in hell. As harsh as that is to say, he is glorified by everything, by his creation, by his by his predetermined uh, wills, as um, uh, predetermined creeds and wills. You know what he determines to come to pass. He is glorified yeah. by all of it, not not merely the redemption of the elect. Most certainly, he is glorified in salvation, but he's glorified by everything.
3: Yeah. So, what is from a dispensational view? What is the point of all this that we're going through, all the way back from Adam and Eve, all the way to? To the coming of the second coming of Christ, uh, what and what do dispensations have to do with it? Can you explain what are the different dispensations sure. uh, that that dispensationalism uh, sure. is talking about?
2: And this is where dispensationalism is very helpful uh, very helpful. Yeah. It really because it shows a a philosophy. It's a philosophy of history, if you will. It shows in advance that God over time gave more revelation, and as He gave more revelation, a new Economy: A new era had started, and then it built on that, built on that all the way through till we see the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. So dispensation, the very word dispensation, it it is sort of an old word. The King James Version still uses dispensation. Uh, The word itself comes from the Greek word oikonomia, and it sounds much like our English word economy. Because that's where we get our word economy from. Hmm. And as Ryrie, I, I appeal to Ryrie a lot because he was such a, a formidable dispensational scholar. And he came out and, and, uh, really with the, with the definitive textbook called Dispensationalism. It was originally called dispensationalism today, and then he reproduced it in the 90s called dispensationalism. Uh, According to Ryrie, a a dispensation or an economy is a a distinguishable economy for the outworking of God's purpose. Mm. And it just shows that, you know, when you just look at the Old Testament, clearly nobody's coming to church anymore with their sacrifices, right? Uh, There's something that's different that's changed. You know, people, when you look at Adam and Eve, they were, say, vegetarians. And then God gave, after Noah and the flood, uh, permission to eat meat. Well, Mm. there's, there's different things that have happened. Government was established after the flood as well. That wasn't in the beginning. So you see, when you look at the Bible, this advancement of history, everything is pointing to an end which we do see coming with the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and then finally to establish his kingdom in Revelation 20. That seems to be the purpose or the end goal of history. So dispensationalism, through the various dispensations, show this advancement of history.
3: Okay, so... Uh, what what are the – can you break down the dispensations What and how many of them are there? What Do you know what they sure. are? Sure. Yeah.
2: Now, this is something that even dispensational scholars disagree on. It's an in-house debate, yeah. a very friendly one. Yeah. This isn't anything that's uh, an essential. The essentials are, as I mentioned, the consistent literal interpretation, a distinction between church and Israel, and the doxological purpose of yeah. everything. Outside of that, there's a lot of wiggle room. Uh, the classic variety of dispensationalism believes in seven dispensations, uh, starting with Adam and Eve, that being innocence, and then moving into conscience, and then moving into the next dispensation, which was government. God allowed capital punishment after the flood. Are you now? Are you talking about under Moses? Uh, under that would be with Noah. In okay. the flood. So, oh, when okay. we, so when we get to Moses, would be, uh, uh, before Moses, we get to Abraham, which would be a dispensation of, say, promise. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham uh, that he's going to be a blessing to the nation and that uh, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. Um, after Abraham would be Moses, the dispensation of law. Uh, something's different now. Now we have a national Israel with, with an actual codified law. Mm. Uh, after that would be what we're in right now, which is traditionally called the dispensation of grace. Some refer to it as a dispensation of the church. Uh, it's a distinguishable economy. Yeah.
3: Uh, now, the yeah. next
2: one would be the, the millennium, the dispensation millennium. That, that would be from a classic seven, seven dispensation scheme. And I, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, just no, that's okay. yeah. the, the difference, I was saying that there's differences between scholars on this. Uh, that's a classic variety. But most, uh, all, all across the board, all dispensationalists, some would say there's up to 12 dispensations. Some would say there's only three. Uh, some would say there's five, but three is the one number that everybody agrees on. There's a dispensation of law that's clearly different in the Old Testament, a dispensation of grace, which we're in right now, and a dispensation of the kingdom, which will be the thousand year reign from Jesus Christ. Oh, very interesting.
3: And and fundamentally, what what does a uh, dispensationalist believe? And there's probably a variety of opinions on this too. But what is God achieving through having these separate dispensations? Is there what what is the point that I mean? Why didn't He just have the church age. Hmm. Uh, why did he have law and then the church age and then the millennial? Uh, do, is there a thought that? Yeah, you that? know,
2: that, that's an interesting question. Uh, a lot of speculation sure. at this point, but I, you know, I would tend to think that God is very wise, yeah, <laughs> as the scriptures definitely tell us. Sure, and He didn't just dump truck a bunch of information on us at once. Yeah, He understood our finite capabilities. Yeah, and so what dispensationalism is built on is on the doctrine of progressive revelation mm. that over time God revealed more and more of His plan throughout time um, as. Creation, as humanity uh, grew in maturity, to be able to understand more to to be maximally glorified by the time we get to the uh, the sending of his son and his atonement, yeah uh, we now have thousands of years leading up to that of anticipation. Mm. Right. So it's exciting. It's like, wow, God He did come through with His promises. I mean, God promises things in the Old Testament, and for those to be able to, to be able to demonstrate his faithfulness to promises, there obviously has to be time. Sure. Um, and so He gives promises all the way from Genesis on, and there has to be this this time amount between to show him come through to show him coming through on those promises, show that he's faithful in his promises. Yeah. Clearly that would that would that would take years, even thousands of years. Yeah. Um and, and with all glorified. the covenants
3: in the Old Testament, there's a lot of promises being made. There is. So, yeah. and, and
2: this is interesting. Because it's dispensationalism that actually emphasized the biblical covenants. Mm. In contrast, covenant theology. Now, I'm not a covenant theologian, yeah. uh, but I do interact with them yeah. a lot. And uh, the covenant theologian, well, the covenant theology is based on you know two or three theological covenants or I would even say theoretical covenants covenants that aren't found in the scriptures yeah. dispensationalism on the, other, on the other hand emphasizes the biblical covenants the covenants given to Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant given to, to uh, Israel even, and even the land covenant in Deuteronomy 29 uh, it's, it's, just, it's in the dispensational system that actually emphasizes the biblical covenants not covenant theology it's, Interesting. it's as ironic as that sounds yeah it is that is <laughs> ironic
3: okay my guest today is Corey Marsh with Southern California Seminary And uh, we're talking about the new book that just came out, Forge from Reformation. Check it out. You can go to the website, forgefromreformation.com. We're going to continue this discussion. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: How much time and money do you spend buying lattes and espresso drinks? Express Fix Coffee invites you to discover super automatic espresso machines for your home or office. Enjoy delicious coffee drinks at the push of a button. Dave Martin and his local team help you choose the perfect machine for you. Call Express Fix Coffee for new or used espresso machines, repairs, parts, or accessories. Learn more online at expressfixcoffee.com. Call Dave at 619-825
0: 3985.
3: there got to be more. Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. Please uh, visit us on YouTube. You can check out our YouTube channel. We got all kinds of fantastic shows uh, interviews with scientists, interviews with uh, psychiatrists, interviews with. Uh, not too long ago, I interviewed an expert on video game addiction, and uh, very, very interesting. She actually came from a. Her marriage almost fell apart because her husband was addicted to video games, and he is uh, uh, very high up in the Navy as, as a uh, psychiatrist. So all kinds of in- interesting stuff on the, the uh, channel. Uh, please check it out. i love to have your feedback and uh, your comments, your questions, anything uh, you want to throw my way. So my guest today is Corey Marsh, and um, we are talking about the Reformation. And so, Corey, we've been talking about dispensationalism, uh, we haven't uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking about the Reformation so far, but uh, share with us the interaction between uh, the, the uh, dispensational theology and uh, how it connects to the Reformation. Sure.
2: Well, dispensationalism uh, as a system um, is, is generally re- uh, pretty recent. Uh, dispensational principles and understandings Can go all the way back to the New Testament As we would say But as a system um, It's fairly recent And when you say as a system What do you mean by that? Well as, as a, an actual Like we have a disp, uh, dispensational scheme Like I just went through the seven dispensations Okay, uh, Something like that
3: So like a systematic the- theology kind of a thing oh, well,
2: It's yeah. more of a biblical theology That yeah. really emphasizes the ecclesiology The doctrine of the church And mm-hmm. eschatology gotcha. uh, and, 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 and connecting all the dots between them Makes it a system it, it, That's generally recent but so is, say, covenant theology. It didn't exist before the Reformation. So what we're showing in the book, and it's right there. And in, actually, in the subtitle says it best: is how dispensational thought advances the Reformed legacy. Uh, we are saying that the the principles that are emphasized in dispensational theology are consistent with. The Reformation principles like the five sola, sola scriptura, uh, sola fide, sola gratia, sola solus Christus, sola de la gloria, you know, by Christ alone, scripture alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Um, We have chapters devoted to each one of those, showing that a a literal hermeneutic will result in a proper understanding of each one of these.
3: Interesting. Okay, so when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the the door of the church— uh, and he he emphasized the five solas, which uh, he's responding to Catholic theology at the time, Catholicism at the time. Um, what you're saying is that if you if you take a dispensational um, approach, you're going to come to that same conclusion.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean the five solas really were, were an amalgamation of points of the Reformation. It wasn't merely from – Martin Luther, uh, but he most certainly was the the, the the spearhead of the Reformation, if you will, by, by the 95 Thesis. Now, what's sure. important about uh, Martin Luther, and we bring it up in the book, is that before he nailed his 95 Thesis, he actually had what was called—he wrote something called the Disputation on Scholastic Theology. And a lot of people can trace the Reformation actually to that, and that was where he was in the academy saying, you know, we need to go back to the original languages. We're emphasizing a lot of Aristotle, a lot of Aquinas— But we have neglected the original Greek and Hebrew. So we need to get back in our curriculum at the university, we need to have biblical language training. So he, he
3: was saying, he was saying, we're referring to other scholars. We're not going right to the, the original absolutely,
2: text. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And, and that's why Martin Luther really champions the sola scriptura principle, meaning scripture alone. Um, and that is what that, the 95 Thesis was really based on that. And what he would later write, um, he wrote three tracks in particular in 1520, which really show the, manifestate, the, manif- the manifesto. If there was a manifesto of Martin Luther of uh, Reformation principles, it was in 1520. He wrote these three sort of rapid-fire tracks. Um, to the uh, Christian nobility of the German nation. Um, we also wrote one called the Freedom of the Christian Man. And um, the third, uh, of course, it escapes me right now. That's right. All well, well, the microphones. And I wrote a chapter on it. Uh, <laughs> which makes it even funnier. Uh, but it is in the book. Yeah. It's in chapter uh, seven. I can tell you that. That's a no, great chapter tease. Six. That's a great tease. <laughs> right, exactly. Get the book to read the third. That's right. Right. But what Martin Luther did with this is that he understood if you read scripture literally, you're going to come to, say, what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. Christians no longer need a pope. Then no, we never did need a pope. Yeah. Every Christian, as Peter says, is a, a spiritual priesthood. Uh, every Christian is a priest. You know, Christ, when he died and rose from the grave, I mean, he separated forever any need of any other mediator. It's Christ alone. Yeah. So when you when you flesh that out and you stay consistent to it, well, the, the the Roman church and the pope and all the cardinals and the bishops seem like an obstruction to the New Testament portrayal of the church. Mm. And so, ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church is a very impactful, uh, impactful, uh, impacted the doctrine of the church, if you will, from the Reformation. That now we don't need to be part of this system with this supposedly extra holy man we call the Pope. Every Christian's a priest, and we have the right to interpret the scriptures on our own using a a, a, a responsible literal hermeneutic.
3: That's great. And so, um, that's interesting because, you know, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, emphasized for a long time that. Uh, you can't really understand the Scriptures unless you have somebody who has the, the knowledge to be able to tell you what it actually means. Mm-hmm. And so we're coming from a different direction here. You're, com- you're coming from the direction that, hey, you can understand the Scriptures— but the key thing is, is you've got to understand, you've got to have a proper hermeneutic.
2: Absolutely. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says God is not a God of confusion. Hmm. If he wants us to know him, and I, and I think we can agree that he does, <laughs> right, know him in a very special, intimate way, Yeah. he's going to give us a book, which he did, for us to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not complicated at times. It most certainly is. Sure. But that also doesn't mean that... Say the person of a, a, a lesser intellect couldn't understand the yeah. essentials that God is. God exists. He loves me. He sent his son to die for me. And I am to trust in him with my life. Those are the essentials of the gospel. And, and anybody can understand that. Yeah. Um, by the way, I just, it just, it just came to me now that third uh, track. Okay. Actually, it was the second track that Martin Luther wrote. Was called the Babylonian, Babylonian Captivity of the Church. So you got those in, in, in all the three that came out in 1520. That was, it escaped me while we what, were talking. What, what is
3: the, I'm not familiar with that. What is the Babylonian ca- Captivity? The of Babylonian
2: church? Captivity of the Church. If there was a book that Martin Luther wrote that really, you know, showed that a separation, a break from the Roman Catholic Church was inevitable it was this particular tract called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And as the title suggests, it, it sort of harkens to the Israelite yeah. captivity from Babylon. Sure. Well, he, he he used that as an illustration, so that's how Christians are in his day, that the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church was the Babylon, and they were held captive to that.
3: And, and, and a lot of this is due to the fact that the Church would not allow the— the Bible to be um, translated into the uh, everyday language.
2: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in his other tract, which came out in the same year, it's called it was called the Address to the to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation concerning the Reform of the Christian Estate. They had big titles back then. Yeah, <laughs> he actually broke that down, and he called them three Romanist walls. One and the second of those Romanist walls won't get through all three, but the second one was that the Pope and this he called what he called a Romanist wall was that the Roman Catholic Church built this hedge around itself so nobody can penetrate it, mm. and and that second hedge or that second wall was that only the Pope has true interpretation of the scriptures. Well, Martin Luther, just coming with a battering ram of scriptures on his own from, from reading the Bible, said that's in, that is not true. Yeah. You know, we are, we are all a priest. Um, you know, Christ has now given us, Christ has, Christ has given us uh, uh, the glory of the Father in himself, yeah. you know, to be able to understand him. And we don't need, say, this other person call, that we call the Pope to, to explain that to us.
3: Yeah. And that's part of the reason that the curtain tore uh, when he was crucified uh, to separate, to, to, to show that we are now uh, have direct access to God. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so um, this is all very interesting. And um, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the key points within this text as far as what can somebody expect to get out of this that they wouldn't necessarily get out, get because there's a lot of books written on the Reformation, and of course it has to do with dispensational theology. But this is a, this is a thick book. Yeah, it's, so, it's, a be- so, it's a beast, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So um, <laughs> what is it uh, that somebody can expect to get out of this? How are they going to grow in their walk with the Lord? How is their understanding of the Scriptures and the Reformation going to change after they're done reading this book. That's what I want to talk to Corey Marsh about. He's with Southern California Seminary. That's SoCalSem.edu. And if you're interested in the book, check it out, forgefromreformation.com. Fantastic opportunity to deepen your knowledge of dispensational theology and the connection with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. We'll be right back.
0: For 36 years, Fast Lane Kayaking has helped people like you experience everything that's great about San Diego. Fast Lane makes fishing and water sports fun and easy. Hobie Cat kayaks feature a popular pedal system, not paddles, keeping your hands free as you fish. You no longer need to tow and gas up a boat to experience great San Diego fishing. Call or come in for your no-charge demo ride, 619-222-0766, fastlanesailing.com. At Dana Landing Arena across from SeaWorld, 619
4: genes.
5: homes.com.
3: Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host Kevin Conover. If you've missed any of today's show, uh, feel free to check it out online. It's a podcast. It's on iTunes, all over the place, and uh, all kinds of good information. My guest today is Corey Marsh with uh, SoCal Seminary at SoCalSem.org. Uh, I'm sorry, .edu and ForgedFromReformation.com is the new book. How dispensational thought advances the Reformed legacy. So, uh, Corey, we're on our last segment here, and, um, you know, there's people out there that I I know are very interested in this. There's a lot of people that's going to be on people's minds because we're on the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, incredibly. Uh, Praise God for Martin Luther's courage uh, to break down those walls and allow us direct access to the Word of God um, is amazing. And so... What would you say to somebody who's considering buying this? What is What are they going to get out of this that maybe they, ha- they didn't know before? How is their uh, attitude towards Scripture and towards the Lord going to change as they read this book? How is it going to
2: uh, equip them? Uh, in their walk with the Lord. Well, the first thing is you can see it, it's going to make you very buff yeah. carrying this thing. It's <laughs> about right. 600 pages. Uh, it, it is it is no joke. That is some heavy scholarship there. Um, yeah, and you've got 15 different uh, authors we who contributed do. to it. Yeah, we have we have this incredible array of dispensational scholars in uh, represented in this book. We have Tommy Ice, who was the one of the co-founders of the Pre-Trib Research Center, uh, Glenn Kreider, a professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Now,
3: is Pre-Trib pre-tribulation? Meaning, you, uh, is that uh, typical of dispensational theologians? It yeah,
2: it is. Now that yeah. it is very, it's very unique to dispensational theology that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. This is based on texts in First Thessalonians four, in particular. But yeah, and you see things like a very thundering argument from silence in the Book of Revelation from chapter four to chapter twenty. Two, I believe, believe all the chapters in between, which is the horrific tribulation on earth. There is not a single mention of the church. Wow, because we're not there. Yeah. yeah,
3: and so, and again, that comes back to like you were saying, a literal interpretation of Scripture.
2: A consistently literal, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah The book, and we have, I mean, other scholars involved: Kevin Zuber, Moody Bible Institute. Um, the general editors of this book, Christopher Cohn, he's the president of Calvary University in Kansas City, Missouri. It used to be uh, uh, Calvary Bible College and Seminary. James Fazio is the dean of Bible and Theology here at, at uh, Southern California Seminary, and it's actually our seminary, SCS Press, that published uh, this book. But there are so many different scholars involved in this, like I mentioned a few of them already. Uh, we have Paul Scharf from Dispensational Publishing House uh, wrote a chapter um, there are just uh, there are so many, and you can see just from the endorsements, the first few pages of the book is endorsements. We have endorsements from David Jeremiah, of course, and H. Wayne House, and Ed Heinson, and Mark Hitchcock. Um, these are Paul Benward. These, these are very notable names within scholarship. Yeah. Uh, this is not a devotional-type reading. Um, in fact, this is a book that we are signing in one of our courses at Southern California Seminary, and other uh, of some of the authors are part of seminaries. Like Patrick Belville is one of our authors; he's the president of Tyndall Seminary. Um, there is uh, Ron Bagalki. He is a research professor at Tyndall Seminary and the University of Pretoria. Uh we have so many different Andy Woods is a president of Chafer Theological Seminary. He's an author in this. Uh this book is gonna be used in seminaries yeah. as, as a course textbook, as it should, because it's it it's it's a little bit more advanced. This is this is this is theological meat. Yeah, you know, this is something you roll up your sleeves and get into it and go, wow, okay, this is something I'm not normally taught in church. Sure. Uh, but it definitely deepens your knowledge of theology, it deepens your knowledge of God's word, and it deepens your knowledge of church history because we're talking about the Reformation.
3: Yeah, and the and the argument, the, the thesis here, the overall thesis is what? What is the overall thesis? I mean, we have this here. Is this because, because uh, when you guys were thinking about putting this book together— what was the thought behind it? What, were you, what was it that you were responding to in our
2: culture mm-hmm. uh, that, that drove, um, you know, uh, writing this book? Sure. You know, when, probably the most famous, I don't know, well, the most notable of the five solas, sola scriptura, yeah, meaning scripture alone. Mm. This is such a, a fundamental, phenomenal principle from the Reformation. Uh, however, there are those that promote scripture alone that don't stick to scripture alone as their ultimate authority. Yeah. Uh, specifically, when talking about the opposite of dispensational theology, which would be covenant theology, oftentimes, most oftentimes, they would appeal to the reformers. What did the reformers say about this? What did the Westminster Confession of Faith say about this? Uh, these great statements and creeds and reformers, which are extremely important, um, they would mostly appeal to them we on the other side saying, we take Sola Scriptura literally, mm. which means we appeal to Scripture alone. And then that doesn't mean we don't also uh, are helped informed by other scholarship. Sure, of course sure. we interact with scholarship, but we're going to understand, we're going to take it, we're going to be Bereans, Max yeah. 17, and understand the Scripture at face value and see what God has saying in His Word. And it's really dispensational theology that that upholds Sola Scriptura, excuse me, Sola Scriptura most consistently more than the other system. Yeah, and there's a lot of attacks on the Church
3: today, and on on the, the Bible today, there's a lot of people, you know, higher criticism and so forth. And especially with the issues that are in our culture, like the issue of homosexuality, we have pastors being ordained that are homosexual. We have um, an, a lot of churches embracing evolution mm-hmm. and these sorts of things. Uh, does that principle, uh, is that any of the the thought behind this
2: too? Or well, is that... the, those cultural issues, as very important as they are, yeah. um, aren't addressed in the book. However, the principle behind them is, yeah. which would be uh, an aberration of not taking Scripture at face value. When yeah. you take Scripture at face value in, in such has to just say Levit- Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 Timothy 2. You see these these clearly, you know, written statements that show that homosexuality is a sin. Yeah. For instance, since you brought that up. Yeah. That would come from a, a literal interpretation. If you abandon a literal interpretation, well, then how then you can make it mean whatever you want. That's right, and then yeah. you can have these, you know, supposed Christian authority figures ordaining other supposed Christian authority figures that are in a lifestyle that is clearly against yeah. Scripture's commands.
3: Yeah, so would you say that a lot of what we see, uh, because even within the church today, we're seeing a, almost a moral relativism uh, where morality is what you make it. It's the whole, uh, this is what it means to me. Would you say that that, that abandoning the the uh, Reformation hermeneutic and the, the dispensational hermeneutic here, uh, is th- that's what that's
2: going to lead to? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Dispensationalism... Emphasizes scripture alone to the point that there has to be a standard. Yeah. There has to be a universal standard. Otherwise then we don't have any right to judge one another on any any choice mm-hmm. being made. Whether it's something as you brought up homosexuality to something as grotesque as torturing babies for fun. Sure. Uh, at what point do you what point is there a standard to say, no, that is wrong. Yeah. That is sin. That is evil. Or even abortion. I mean, abortion. Some, some, uh, there's yeah. another great example from our yeah. from our culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Another horrible example <laughs> yeah. from our culture. But yeah. you're absolutely right. If you don't have a standard to stick to which which is the word of god scripture and a proper way to read it which should be the 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 normal way of reading any type of literature is what we call literal hermeneutic Mm. there is a doctrine called the perspicuity of scripture Mm. and one of the chapters in the book is written by dr jeremiah mutia actually he's a professor at southern california seminary he makes the case that uh the literal interpretation is embedded within the perspicuity of scripture and it makes sense if we're going to say scripture is clear that's the perspicuity of uh, scripture that it's a clear a scripture though obviously we, we come to that understanding by reading it at face value a normative plain reading which is what we call literal grammatical historical reading so it's something that hermeneutic that literal interpretation is embedded within the perspicuity of scripture otherwise scripture wouldn't be clear yeah. Because we can just make it mean whatever we want. We yeah. go back to the allegorical interpretation. Yeah.
3: And we got to go to a guru to figure out what it means or a priest or whatever the case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Corey, uh, we are just out of time here. That was a fast conversation. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the air hey, today. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you, Kevin. Fantastic. This was great. Fantastic. Yeah. The The website is forgedfromreformation.com, socalseminary.edu. That's S O C A L S E M dot edu. Please check it out. Um, I can't give it a higher recommendation. Uh, if there's any kind of a message we need in the church today, it's that So. Uh, Sola Scriptura. Uh, you know, we build our lives upon the Word of God. Jesus Christ said, "He who hears my words and uh, build and does what I say is like a man or a woman who built their house upon the rock. And when the storms of life came, that house stood firm. But uh, the opposite would be to, to build our lives upon sand. And it, and I and I would uh, um. argue, and I, and I know Corey would too, that uh, anything less than a uh, Sola Scriptura hermeneutic, a literal hermeneutic is building your life upon sand. So Amen. thanks for being with us here today. I hope you have a fantastic Saturday. And uh, we'll we'll uh, be with you next week again, Saturday, 2 to 3, or uh, YouTube or podcast. Thanks for being with us. My website's educateforlife.org. God bless you.
0: Did you miss part of today's program? Don't worry, we're committed to helping you get the info you need. Okay, that was dumb. But for real, visit educateforlife.com for podcasts and video recordings of the show and to sign up for the School of Unshakable Faith. Leave us your comments, compliments, questions, or concerns at 800-243-9719 or email kevcon at educateforlife.com That's K-E-V-C-O-N at educateforlife.com
1: You will always be much more to me Every day I wrestle
0: with the voices that keep telling me I'm not right, but that's
1: alright.